So as I'm looking at the screen and seeing all of your faces, I'm feeling a little bit of nostalgia for that time when we could actually be in the same room and be physically in each other's presence. In some ways, it seems like a long time ago. But what I'd like to do tonight is pick up, in a way, where we left off back in June, July, early August, when we went on that pretty whirlwind tour of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Establishments of Mindfulness, which is the key discourse for the teachings of insight practice of of Vipassana. And all the different meditation methods laid out in that sutta or discourse are designed to reveal deeper and deeper truths of how things are so that we can live in alignment with that truth and as a result experience more ease, more happiness, more peace, more freedom, all the way up to the deepest freedom known as Nibbana or awakening. So that's my usual one-second definition of what in actual actuality is a whole lifetime of practice. But I wanted to give some context for this exploration of insight, because these days, as mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream, there are many different approaches to mindfulness available these days, and not all of them are oriented towards insight. So... All of you here are experienced meditators and you have some understanding of the word mindfulness. But these days, even people who are not meditators are likely to have heard this word because it's become so mainstream. And I think I may have mentioned that uh, a few months ago, the toy company Mattel has launched a mindfulness Barbie doll. And so this mindfulness Barbie doll now has flexible legs so that she can sit in the lotus position. And she has a magical necklace that offers guided meditations to promote wellness. And apparently when you press this necklace on her chest, a purple cloud in her chest lights up and tinkling music starts to play and she launches into a guided meditation. And apparently it has something to do about with an imaginary bubble bath and imagining yourself as a giant bubble. Apparently is a way to inspire self-care. So, you know, I use that as a slightly joking snapshot of just how far these practices have moved into the mainstream and also, of course, become commodified and capitalized. So while what we're doing with mindfulness in this context does have some aspect of self-care, it's not the whole goal because the Buddha clearly saw that actually compulsively chasing after comfort is part of the problem. If we're just looking for the next hit of pleasant experience to make us happy, then we're more or less addicts constantly driven by the need to find something, anything, to temporarily relieve whatever our current dukkha is. Dukkha being stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. And we can see that, I think, in the small and the large scale of our lives when we touch into some physical pain or stress or boredom, anxiety, loneliness, 
relationship breakdown and grief, perhaps even existential meaninglessness. On the small scale, we just might find ourselves driven to eat that packet of chocolate biscuits or spend a few hours on social media or grab a glass of wine or two at the end of a long day or binge watch some TV series or, you know, there's all those different little pleasure hits that we we can tend to go after. We see that in the small scale. We also see it in the large scale of our lives. And if you think back over the arc of your life, different stages, there were probably different things that you thought at the time were really going to do it for you. So maybe when you were a teenager, you might have thought, if I could just finish high school, then I'll be happy. Then we finish high school and perhaps it's, if I could just leave home, then I'll be happy. And maybe we leave home and if I can just get a job, then I'll be happy. Maybe we get a job. If I could just get a better job, then I'd be happy. If I could just find a partner, then I'd be happy. We find a partner. If I could just find a better partner, then I'd be happy. There's always something that's just out of reach that keeps us looking for the next thing, whether it's more money, more status or fame, a more beautiful home, an exotic holiday, a sabbatical, a dream retirement. There's always something. Which is not to say there's something fundamentally wrong with wanting to improve our lives. But if there's an unconscious expectation that at some point everything's going to come together just perfectly and then we'll live happily ever after, then we're setting ourselves up for profound disappointment. Plus, it takes a huge amount of time and energy to try to get conditions to always be the way we'd like them to be. And even if we do occasionally manage it, because of the truth of impermanence, that happiness doesn't last. So unless we have some inner awareness, some mental training, we tend to just be at the mercy of life's inevitable ups and downs. So this is how the Tibetan-American nun Pema Chodron describes our predicament. She says, as human beings, we share a tendency to scramble for certainty whenever we realize that everything around us is in flux. In difficult times, the stress of trying to find solid ground, something predictable and safe to stand on, seems to intensify. But in truth, the very nature of our existence is forever in flux. Everything keeps changing, whether we're aware of it or not. What a predicament. We seem doomed to suffer simply because we have a deep-seated fear of how things really are. Our attempts to find lasting pleasure, lasting security, are at odds with the fact that we're part of a dynamic system in which everything and everyone is in process. So this is where we find ourselves, right in the middle of a dilemma. And it leaves us with some provocative questions. How can we live wholeheartedly in the face of impermanence, knowing that one day we're going to die? What's it like to realize we can never completely and finally get it all together? Is it possible to increase our tolerance for instability and change? 
How can we make friends with unpredictability and uncertainty and embrace them as vehicles to transform our lives? So that's actually what insight practice is inviting us to do and allowing us to do. And these are the questions that our practice invites us to contemplate. Rather than putting all of our energy into the continual search for something out there to fix the problem, because from the Buddha's perspective, that's our fundamental ignorance. And one image that's used in the Tibetan tradition to represent ignorance is a pig, because a pig just snuffles along with its snout in the mud, sniffing out the next thing to eat and the next thing to eat and the next thing to eat, even though it's already usually pretty fat. And most of the time the pig's ears are sort of flopped down over its eyes, so it's also blind to where it actually is and to where it's going. So the pig is quite a graphic image for our predicament. It represents how when there's no mindfulness or insight, we tend to live our lives blindly, greedily, self-centeredly, and ultimately unfulfilled. And every one of you here has already begun to see the limitations of that approach to some extent, or you wouldn't be here this evening. So coming back to the image of the pig as the embodiment of ignorance, it's wisdom, understanding, clear seeing or insight that helps free us from that ignorance. And it's mindfulness meditation that gives us the tools to support transformative insights to arise. So just to say what is meant by insight here, whatever level we're practicing at, The purpose of insight is to reduce suffering. So I appreciate the way that English Dharma teacher Robert Bayer initially defines insight in his powerful book, Seeing That Frees. He describes it at first quite loosely as any realization, understanding, or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a decrease in dukkha. So this is a very simple, practical definition to understand whether something is a useful insight or not. We can ask, has it brought to any degree a decrease in dukkha? And it reminds us that the point of all of this hard work is to free the heart and mind from suffering. And in the beginning stages of this movement towards freedom, the insights we discover tend to be on a more personal or psychological level. So we might get sudden flashes of clarity about, for example, our personal histories or our emotional patterns or our default personality settings. And these more personal insights are still very useful because they help us to let go of some of our unskillful ways of being in the world. They help us to develop healthier relationships with ourselves, with each other. And as a result, we usually experience more well-being. Then, as the practice continues, we experience more insights that are of a more impersonal or universal nature. 
And these are insights to what in the Buddha's teachings are known as the three characteristics. I think I touched into these briefly towards the end of the Foundations of Insight course. So these three universal characteristics are anicca, dukkha, anatta, sometimes translated into English as the understanding that everything is impermanent, anicca, imperfect, dukkha, and impersonal, anatta. So I'll be going into these three characteristics uh, over the course of these next few talks. So just quick definitions to get us started. The first universal characteristic is anicca. Everything is in constant, changing, impermanent. And because of that, it leads to the second universal characteristic, dukkha. Because everything is unreliable, unsatisfactory, imperfect, it's dukkha. And then the third characteristic is anatta. Again, because everything is impermanent, everything is a process. And there is no fixed stable entity or identity in here to whom all this is happening that I can make me. There's no permanent self at the center of it all. So that's really some key teaching there and it's possible that for some of you when you hear these three characteristics maybe you experience a feeling of lightness or relief, recognition. But for others, might be more the opposite, a feeling of dislike or resistance or confusion or maybe even doubt. Because it's true that as ideas, as concepts, these three characteristics probably don't sound that appealing or pleasant. But as we experience them directly for ourselves on the level of immediate experience rather than concept, we really start to taste the benefits of living in alignment with anicca, dukkha, anatta. As I'm pointing to, though, we can't just think our way into this understanding. Intellectual knowledge alone is not enough. We need to use mindfulness to help bring this understanding down from the head level to the heart, and then even to the gut, so that we can embody these insights more and more fully in every aspect of our lives. So how does mindfulness work its magic? It works in a few ways simultaneously. One is that it calms and steadies the mind so that we can see more clearly. And two, with that steadiness, we understand very directly in our own experience the truth that everything is changing. So as we were doing in the meditation just a few minutes ago, when we sit down and pay attention to our actual experience, we see that the breath comes and goes. Physical sensations come and go. Thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states come and go. And the only thing that seems to be stable are our concepts about our experience. And actually this is one way that we do often unconsciously try to stop this flow of experience by creating fixed ideas, 
beliefs, views, opinions and self-perceptions to temporarily fix the flux and to create an illusion of stability. But if we look more carefully about those attempts, we see the suffering that they cause because they act as mental prisons that keep us trapped in painful reactivity and resistance. So mindfulness can reduce that ignorance by bringing us into direct contact with the immediacy of experience. And then we see the truth of impermanence playing out in every moment. Mindfulness also helps steady and gather the mind into the quality known as samadhi, unification of mind, non-distractedness. And then we can see even more clearly how things are. And it might sound paradoxical or contradictory, but as the mind becomes more stable and more steady, it becomes clear how everything, every other aspect of our experience is unstable and unsteady. So again, earlier in the meditation, we were tuning into just this constant flow of experience, moment to moment to moment. And the more we can stay steady and present with that, the more powerful our equanimity or stability of mind gets. And when we have some baseline level of equanimity, it's easier to see where and how we resist that flow. So I find this very interesting. Maybe you've had this experience that you're just settling back, you're steady, you're in your meditation, there is some feeling of just experiences moving through. And then one particular experience, and in my experience it's often a thought, just kind of hooks us. And it's like out of that flow we go, yep, that's me, that one's solid, that one's real, that one's true. And we suddenly fixed or stopped the flux and made something solid out of it. And then perhaps at some point we see that, we release it, we're back in the flow. But it can be fascinating to watch that in our practice. Out of all the myriad changing experiences, which ones do we take the bait of metaphorically? So I often simplify the whole of this practice into just seeing or knowing the experience of when there is clinging, holding on, stopping, fixing that flux, and when there's release of that clinging and we're just in the flow of experience. And in some ways this flow is similar to what in positive psychology has been recognized as the flow state. Some of you may be familiar with that. The positive psychologist, apparently his name is pronounced Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. It's a, it looks like a Czechoslovakian or maybe a Croatian name. So in 1990, he wrote a book called Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience. And this was extremely influential on presidents, prime ministers, sports coaches, top athletes. Some of you may have know about, know about it. 
And maybe you've experienced some of the characteristics of this state for yourself. So it's described as being completely involved in an activity for its own sake. And then the ego falls away. Time flies. Every action, movement and thought follows inevitably from the previous one, like playing jazz. Your whole being is involved and you're using your skills to the utmost. So some of the characteristics of this flow state include the fact that the activity is intrinsically rewarding. It has clear goals that, while challenging, are still attainable. There's complete focus on the activity itself, and it's accompanied by feelings of serenity and a loss of feelings of self-consciousness. There's a diminishment of awareness of physical needs. It develops strong concentration, focused attention. And it brings about a sense of timelessness. A feeling so focused, of being so focused on the present that you lose track of time passing. So some of you may have had experiences in that terrain, perhaps in your meditation practice or perhaps in a creative pursuit or perhaps playing sport or music. But I wanted to share this description of how modern psychology is recognizing these same benefits of calming the mind. And in that list of the characteristics of flow state, I'd like to highlight just a couple of aspects. One is the feeling of serenity that comes from releasing self-consciousness. So that releasing of self-consciousness is an aspect of anatta, of not-self. And the other is the sense of timelessness. And this sense of timelessness, again, points to what at first might sound like a contradiction. But when we are more fully able to be with the truth of impermanence, it can temporar temporarily free us from the tyranny of ordinary time. Because I think these days more and more, many of us feel like we just don't have enough time. And it's even been said that time is the new poverty. By contrast, though, when we sit in meditation, and we allow ourselves to live more at the speed of the body instead of at the speed of the mind or at the hyperspeed of technology, we taste some moments of ease. And I think that's perhaps one of the attractions of meditation practice. It helps us to reclaim some peace in the midst of our frenzied busyness, and it gives our poor, fraught nervous systems a bit of a rest or a reset. So in this way, mindfulness does reduce stress and offers us some self-care by temporarily alleviating our unease or our dis-ease. But it goes beyond just providing a kind of a band-aid because when it's practiced within the framework of insight practice, it develops the wisdom that stops us from getting so distressed in the first place. And this wisdom comes from seeing impermanence on deeper and deeper levels. And as we do, it changes how we relate to the truth of change.
in the beginning, though, I think many of us have a somewhat superficial understanding of change and often an ambivalent relationship to it. So if we look at impermanence more broadly, beyond what happens in just our meditation practice, it's obvious in everyday life that everything changes. We can just look at ourselves, the fact that we've aged. It's obvious that I'm no longer five years old, for example, even though sometimes I still feel that way. The truth is my body has changed and my life is very different now than it was back then. And if I live to be 75, it will be different again then. And we can look around and see that seasons change. Even over the last couple of weeks, have you noticed each morning it's getting a bit lighter? The summer is on its way. So seasons change, weather changes, the sun rises and sets. These are natural cycles and I think for the most part we accept them, we even appreciate them. Perhaps at times we can enjoy the transitory and fleeting nature of these experiences. And when we're in this frame of mind, we can hear descriptions of impermanence from the suttas and resonate with their poetry. So this is one passage said to have been spoken by the Buddha. Just as a dewdrop on the tip of a blade of grass quickly vanishes with the rising of the sun and does not stay long, in the same way, the life of human beings is like a dewdrop. And this passage from the early discourses seems to have been the inspiration for a later famous verse in the Diamond Sutra, which comes from the Mahayana tradition. Some of you may know this uh, famous passage. It says, So you should view this fleeting world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So if we're in a balanced frame of mind, hearing these poetic evocations of impermanence might have us nodding wisely at their truth. And for the most part, we accept that change. And of course, we're happy to accept change when it results in the end of something that we didn't like or don't want. Perhaps when that back pain finally releases, we're happy to accept the truth of a Nietzsche. But when it comes back again a few minutes later, we're not so keen on a Nietzsche. We resist it and we wish that the absence of back pain would last a bit longer, maybe even forever. And often there's something in us that still believes that we should be able to master the truth of impermanence so that we can make the bad stuff go away and the good stuff stick around, which again, of course, is delusion, ignorance. But opening to the truth of a nature on deeper and deeper levels is not easy because it is such a core belief. And we can't just jump straight into genuine acceptance of the deeper levels of impermanence, such as our own mortality. We can't 
if we try to jump beyond that, it's actually a form of spiritual bypassing. So truly accepting change doesn't mean overriding the grief that we often naturally feel in the face of loss. It's more about letting ourselves fully feel that loss, but without clinging to it. And just as with every other aspect of the Buddha's teachings, this is a training. When we sit in meditation and we practice opening to impermanence, change, loss on the moment-to-moment level, this strengthens our resilience, our equanimity, our wisdom, and our capacity to navigate that same impermanence, change, and loss in the bigger picture of our lives. So this is how the Zen priest Joan Halifax Roshi describes this process. She says, We in our lives experience one loss after another. It could be the loss of a breast, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a child going into adulthood, which is a way of loss for many parents. could be loss of identity, loss of capacity. She says, my own experience of aging is there are capacities I had 10 years ago I no longer have, and I have to reflect upon those losses. And of course, the loss that all of us will face in anticipation of death. And this loss is something that brings great depth and meaning into our lives and helps us to articulate internally our priorities and what is really important for us. So even though we frame it as loss, there's perhaps part of what she's pointing to is that is in line with that old cliche that every cloud has a silver lining. Generally, when we think of impermanence, we tend to focus on the challenging aspect of it, to cling to what we're losing, and not to see the benefits that that change often allows. So again, I'm guessing if I were to ask each of you, you can think of an example from your own life. If you bring to mind a time when there was great change of some kind, perhaps even tragic loss, that at the time may have seemed absolutely devastating. But if you think back now with the benefit of hindsight and perhaps the stability of equanimity, you can probably also recognize at least some positive benefits that that change, that that loss made possible. And in fact, impermanence is fundamentally necessary for human growth. If it wasn't possible to change, none of us would be able to develop on this path. And on one level, that seems so obvious, it might be hardly worth stating. But again, we tend to overlook the positive side of impermanence in our drive to find security. And then, ironically, often when we do manage to find some temporary security, some steadiness, some stability. Often, before too long, that very security becomes stultifying, claustrophobic, a kind of prison that we're suddenly desperate to escape from. 
So the Belgian psychotherapist Esther Perel recognized this often contradictory relationship to change when she talked about the reconciliation of two fundamental human needs. On the one hand, our need for security, for predictability, for safety, for dependability, for reliability, for permanence. All these anchoring, grounding experiences in our lives that we call home. But we also have an equally strong need for adventure, for novelty, for mystery, for risk, for danger, for the unknown, the unexpected, for surprise. You get the gist, for journey, for travel. So you could say that this journey, this travel, is the path that all of us here are walking on now as we investigate our relationship to impermanence and notice where, when, how do we resist impermanence, cling, hold on, or defend against it. And in that clear seeing, then we can then strengthen the skillful qualities of heart and mind that allow that clinging to release. So I'd like to close with a quote from Gil Fransdell that summarizes the really crucial role of uh, impermanence in our practice. He says, change is a central feature of life. It can be exhilarating, frightening, exhausting or relieving. It can spark sadness or happiness resistance or grasping. Insight into impermanence is central to Buddhist practice. It points us towards becoming equanimous in the midst of change and wiser in how we respond to what comes and goes. In fact, Buddhism could be seen as one extended meditation on transience as a means to freedom. Confronting impermanence profoundly in a meditative way is what opens us to liberation. The final liberative level of impermanence is a movement towards letting go at the deepest level of our psyche. As Ajahn Chah once said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. This release is sometimes called Mahasukha, the great happiness, and it's said to be the only happiness that is ultimately reliable. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.